Just remain standing. And we talked about it last week. Uh, we said we would start today by saying Psalm 63 together. So for those of you that have memorized a little bit of it, this is your opportunity. And for those of you that have not, you can just read off the side screens and we'll never know. So uh, let's uh, say the first eight verses together. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to, your, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. May the Lord bless his word. You may be seated. My name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. Uh, if I don't get to say it personally to you today at the door, just a welcome to each one of you that are here this morning and to our Harbor Online community. Welcome to you as always. Just so glad that you are a part of our church here this morning. Uh, this summer, I had the privilege of uh, presiding over three different wedding ceremonies, one in each month. In June, it was uh, Ty and Julia, and in July, it was Riley and Joe, and then in August, just recently, it was Andy and Amy. And each one of those, real challenge to plan a wedding during, uh, you know, COVID times, but all three just were so special, uh, so appreciated them, just the way the ceremonies went, the way the whole weddings went, and just their love and love for each other and joy in the moment. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about weddings and an engagement process, as we sort of started today, let me paint this picture of a relationship of a man who asks uh, his girlfriend to marry him, and she's delighted, and she gets a wonderful ring on her finger, and then she very quickly says yes, almost too quick, and then uh, he had a whole rest of the evening planned, but instead she says, hey, can we go show my friends the ring? And so, well, okay, that's fine, and so off they go to show her friends the ring, and then the next day the family, and then more friends and more family, and she's bragging about the ring, she's showing everyone the ring, she's talking about the ring over the next weeks and even month, and then about a month later, he comes to realize that they've never really talked. There hasn't been much conversation between the two of them. It's all been about the ring and her showing people the ring, but they've never really looked each other in the eyes, and she's never really said to him, I love you, and I'm excited to spend the rest of my life with you. Now, now in that scenario, the problem is not the diamond ring. The, he wanted her to love the ring. He wanted her to be thankful for it and appreciate it and enjoy it. it the problem is the relationship. That she hasn't said to him, you're more precious to me than anything. And if you want to marry me with a rubber band, that's okay. Because I just love you and want to spend the rest of my life with you. And if you're him... You're maybe going back over that relationship thinking, did I miss something along the way? Did, did she really love me 
Or did she just want the ring? You know, in his mind, he might be saying, you know, is it about the ring or is it about me? And now this is one situation, but uh, sort of an extreme example, but helps us understand. But we probably all, to a degree, men and women, in, the, in whatever category, we all can sort of go down this same road or think of it in the reverse when you meet someone and they're super friendly to you. You know, super helpful, super generous. Ever been skeptical in the back of your mind? You're like, well, what are they up to? You know, what, what are they, are they trying to get something out of me? Why are they being so friendly and so nice? And maybe you've met someone who's like that, and then over the next month or year, you've begun to realize that you were totally wrong. They were just a great person. They just really did love you and care for you and wanted to be generous for you, and you're a little embarrassed that you thought in your heart, oh, what was their agenda? What were they after? But then sometimes it goes the other way, doesn't it? Sometimes you meet someone and maybe you're a little bit naive and you think, oh, this is going to be a great friendship. And then a little bit along the way into the relationship, you realize they want something out of you. You know, they've got a little bit of an agenda for you or a large agenda and there's something that they want from you and you feel a little bit manipulated maybe. You know, maybe a little bit put off in that sense. We all sort of know those kind of relationships. So we could say, are they interested in the ring or the... Fiance, are they interested in the benefits of the relationship or are they interested in the relationship? Or we could say it this way if you want two words that sort of rhyme. Are people interested in the gift or are they interested in the giver? Which is it? The gift or the giver of the gift? And as you think about that in the human realm, I think we all can identify with moments that are like that, but then we go to our relationship with God. And here's a mark. Here's how we know when we truly have an authentic, real relationship with God, as opposed to a counterfeit relationship, is we're actually interested in God for who he is. We're interested in the giver and not the gifts. And that's where we come today. In Psalm 63 that we just read, David is in a desert. He's in a crisis. He's in a literal desert. But he's also in a spiritual desert. And the crisis that's going on in his nation is his son is attempting a coup to take over the kingdom. David has fled for his life, risk in losing everything he owns, including his own life. He's in the desert, and then what is David doing? We just said the words, and for those of you that have been memorizing this week, he wants God. He's not saying, God, help me, get me out of this situation. God, I need you to do this, and I need you to do that. He's actually in these moments of desert and crisis. He's just seeking after God. He just so wants to know the giver and not the gifts. He just wants to know God more and who he is. And as we see David on this journey, here's the question that I hope will grow in our hearts that will work in each one of us that we would leave here today saying, God, I desire to seek you I desire to love you and not seek after your gifts. And that's what we're going to see laid out in this psalm today. The genuine, authentic faith of David that just desires to know God no matter what's happening. 
We're going to see three descriptions of that, and we'll work through the verses. And then at the end, as I did last week, we'll give, well, four application points. The three I gave last week, plus we'll add one more. We actually get a chance to practice what we see David doing by coming to our communion table this morning. And so we'll have a wonderful opportunity just to apply all that we've learned right here this morning in the moment. And so I hope you've got your Bibles. Psalm 63, open them up, turn them on. It's so good to have your Bibles here because you can follow along, you can underline, you can make notes, you can just see sort of how we are seeing in this morning, how we're seeing this authentic, real faith of David. Remember last week, he's thirsting for God. He's longing for God. It's this absence of God. And now in verse 2, here's what he writes. And you'll see it on the side screens if you don't have it in front of you. I have seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and glory. So David now in this moment where he's feeling the absence of God, the thirst for God, he's looking back on his past experiences. He's saying, this is what I'm remembering. And he's saying, I have seen you in the sanctuary. So maybe a time when David was in the tabernacle of God. Maybe it was a time he was worshiping around the Ark of the Covenant. But in some place that David is remembering this sanctuary moment, He's saying, look what he's saying, God, I've seen you. I've beheld you. Now, he's not literally seeing God, I saw you with my eyes. But what he's talking about in the past is he's had these vital and deep and rich experiences with God. He's saying, God, there's been moments in my past where I have just communed so deeply with you. And as he's remembering those things, he's saying, that's what I desire in this moment have this rich and vital and deep communion with you, God. And look at the two characteristics that stand out to David. As he's longing for God and reflecting back on his experience, look where he comes. Two, two characteristics of God. God, your power and your glory. And again, David's in a moment where he's in a little bit of a powerless situation, right? He's lost his kingdom or he's fleeing for his life. It looks like he could lose it. Right? He's powerless. So what a great thing to remember. The strength of God. The omnipotence of God. The bigness of God in the midst of David's smallness and in the midst of his crisis. It's a great quality to remember. And then the second thing he remembers is the glory of God. The weightiness of God. The significance of God. The overarching hugeness. How big and how awesome God is. And he's remembering these qualities of God, and he's saying, this is what I desire in the moment. So I tried to bring these two words together, power and glory. It's almost impossible to do to sort of give a summary of this authentic experience that David is having with God, what he's longing for. And here's how I summarized it. What David longs for is to know God's majesty. Know God's majesty. That's the best way I could try to bring together God's power and his glory. But David, in this moment, he's thirsting and saying, God, I want to know your majesty. If you were to go on Google, and you were to Google famous sermons, I did this, I tested it out, I was hoping it was going to be there, and it is. 
famous sermons. You'll get different sermons, but undoubtedly, you know, in your search results, you will find a sermon preached July 8th, 1741 in Northampton, Massachusetts. One of the most famous sermons ever preached by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Some of you already knew the fa- some of you already know the title of this sermon, but when you, if you don't know the title, when you hear it, you're going to wonder how this sermon ever became so famous. You're going to think, how did, it ever, how did anyone ever attend to hear it the first time, much less 250 years later, we're still talking about it. Here's the title of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You can Google it this afternoon. One of the most famous sermons ever preached. Why? Why? Well, in some ways, that sermon, that title, is representative of what God was doing during that time period. It's called the First Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s. And what the sermon represents and what the title represents is a very big view of God. God's majesty, God's glory, God's immenseness, his power, his holiness. That sermon represents that big view of God. And just think with me for a moment. If God is that big and that holy, think how we get upset about injustice. Think about how we get upset about wrongs that are committed. Now just for a moment, think of God being so much more infinitely holy and infinitely perfect and infinitely about us. Wouldn't you think then that God would be angry about injustice in our world? that God would be angry about wrong in our world, even as we are, wouldn't he be infinitely more angry about that? And we all agree and we all like that point, except when we remember that we too have sinned and done wrong. But that was the power of this sermon. It reminded people of the holiness of God and his anger towards sinners. And as people humbled themselves, they realized the bigness of God and where they stood before him. One of the characteristics of the first great awakening was that people had a great vision for the character of God. They just wanted to know his majesty, his holiness, his greatness. It almost seems strange to us today because we live in such a man-centered Christianity. But there was a sense of the awesomeness, the holiness, the sovereignness, the bigness of God. In fact, I read this summer that Jonathan Edwards felt that the one experience of God that could never be counterfeited was which involved insights into God's holiness. He feels like everything else, you may not not be sure whether it's an authentic spiritual experience, but when people were encountering the holiness of God and the way he felt and the way God was and the way he felt towards them, that he felt like that was always a real experience. And here's how you may know. Here's how you may know whether you've ever experienced the majesty and the holiness and the greatness of God is that you have an apprehension to enter his presence. We, we could say a fear to enter the presence of God. That is the core, genuine Christian experience that we see how great God is and we see how far fall we, we fall short. It's like we want to get low to the ground. It's like we're unworthy. We're unclean. We're undeserving. God, I got to hide. I got to get down. You're so big. You're so holy. Don't look at me. Don't see me, God. Just so low to the ground. And in many ways, this is where David starts. Just says, God, I remember the times when I saw your majesty, when I saw your holiness, when I saw your glory and your beauty. So even as we come to this point, 
I just asked the question, when was the last time you were awed like God like that? When was the last time that you just sensed his majesty, his power, and his glory? When was the last time you just felt like, oh, I'm so undeserving. I've got to get low to the ground. God, I'm so unclean. So don't deserve anything you would offer me. When was the last time you felt that way? When was the last time you experienced God in that way? That's where David leads us here this morning. But then he goes to verse 3. So here we've got this, he's knowing the majesty of God. But here, this is what's so good about the Bible. This is what is so good about God. You're going to wonder what the next verses are. This is where it always goes. If we just were to stop there, there'd be no hope. There'd be no hope. It would be true. God, you're holy and we're not. But this is where the scriptures always take us. Look at verse 3. It is so sweet. It is so good. Here's what David writes. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Because your love is better than life. It's this word love. Every time we talk about this word, we have to mention the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. I think I mention it about once a year. Because it means the unconditional, faithful love of God. You, we think of love today in our culture. You know, love is based on feelings. Love is certainly conditional. But this word says God's love is faithful. It's eternal. It's limitless. And here we've just described how at times we can feel so unworthy, so unclean, so undeserving in the presence of God. Now David says, God, your love for me is not based on my actions. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But I have experienced this love of God. It's ever faithful, relentless, constant, lavishing, extravagant, unrestrained, one way, all from God to us. It is sheer grace. This is the love that David is remembering in this moment. I was practicing this on Friday morning in, uh, in my upstairs office in our home and and just even in my soul in this moment was just so appreciating God's love for me. And just as I was at this very moment, there was a little scratch on the door, and it was early, and it was our puppy, and she wanted to come in and greet me. And so I said, okay, let me let her in. So I opened the door, she came in, and I pushed back my chair, and she came just a little bit, but she peed right there on the floor right in that moment. Now let me tell you, if you had to rung the doorbell in about the next 10 seconds and said, oh, do you have a dog for sale? I could have just picked up that dog <laughs> and said, here you go. It's free. Just take it. Just take it. Let me tell you how bad it was. I almost thought that cat could be a good option for our family. <laughs> but, but, but I recovered. I recovered. I recovered. For those of you who are new to our harbor, we're like a dog church. So, uh, so just so you know. See, cats have no value. They couldn't even fit this illustration. So, okay. All right. Sorry. Uh, but... But, so in this moment, as I'm now going to get paper towels and get the spray and right there in front of my chair, then I'm thinking, here's, here's what I'm thinking. My love is so conditional, right? It's so conditional, right? One little thing, and literally, I could have given that dog away. It was not a good moment in my soul. But then I thought, oh, God, you are so faithful. You are so faithful. You know, you're just so loving and so good, your unconditional love for us that never wavers, never wavers, not once. This is the story of the Bible. 
God's unceasing, uncaused, gracious, and generous love towards us. God is under no obligation to save us. We don't deserve it, but he pursues us. He comes after us. He wants to be in relationship with us. So what's David experiencing here? What's the sign of his authentic faith? First, he's seen the majesty of God, the bigness of God, the holiness of God, and he's come low to the ground, but now he's experiencing, here's the second idea, he's experiencing God's love. He's experiencing just this unconditional love of God. That's what he's reminding himself of. That's what he's desiring more. And look at what it says. This is not a low-level love. He's saying this love is more satisfying than life itself. I'd rather die than live without God's love because your love is better than life. In this moment, he's saying the gifts don't matter at all. All that matters is the giver and his love for me. And so as you're processing these first two ideas, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God, what's remarkable is not the first point. Again, it can't, if, if you don't want to humble yourself, it can be offensive. But the first point is that God is big and would be angry about wrongdoing. That's not remarkable. That's fairly standard. You would probably get there almost all on our own, that God would have, you know, God would be holy. Here's the remarkable point. It's the second point. That in the midst of God being holy and us being so sinful that he has this unconditional hesed love towards us, never failing, never stopping, no matter what, he's just after us. That's the remarkable spot. And so again, I would just ask, do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? For us, it's made possible through Christ on the cross. See, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Christ took our place. He took all of that anger upon him so we can be in relationship with God. And so I would ask again, have you ever come to Christ? Have you just trusted him for this love? Have you just experienced all that God has for you in this moment? Wouldn't, and if you haven't, wouldn't you run to him now? Even as you're low to the ground, even as God might have convicted you about how holy he is and how sinful you are, wouldn't you just come to Christ and say, Jesus, I just trust in you. I bring nothing. It's unearned. It's undeserved. But oh, I come and trust in you. I turn from my sin. I put my faith in Christ. And then I would also ask, do you you know this moment? Do you know the moment where you came to Christ? And you just felt his overwhelming love for you. It just came flooding through your soul. It was just better than life itself. That's what David's saying. Because your love is better than life. This is his thirst for God. Let's look at the third idea. First idea, he sees the holiness, the majesty of God. Second idea, his experiences out of there, the love of God. Now down to verses four and five. I'll read four quickly. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And then verse five, I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food, and singing lips my mouth will praise you. So really there's a, there's, in there, there's two different things. We see this praise, this worship, this glorify God. You could call it delight. It's all over the place. We really could have another point in here. But David is just delighting and worshiping God. This whole section could almost be called David's desire for God and his delight in God. He sort of goes back and forth between the two. He's desiring more of him, but he's delighting in who God is. But then in verse 5, he gives us a specific delight. 
I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. Here's what David's saying. Only God can satisfy my soul. My satisfaction is found in God and God alone. Give me the best meal that could satisfy my physical hunger. That's nothing in compared to me meeting God and having him satisfy my spiritual hunger. In fact, in some ways, David could be saying here, if you took away every gift, every gift and everything, I'm still saying, God, you satisfy me. You, is, you are what my heart longs for. So here's how I'd summarize this third idea. It's sort of a journey here. The majesty of God, the love of God, and the third idea is this. We delight in his satisfaction. We just come to a point where we are fully satisfied in God. How do you know if you have a real faith in God? How might you know if someone else could be deceived? Is that they're always looking for the byproducts of faith. You know, I want money, I want success, I want healing, I want blessings, I want feelings, I want experiences. It's all the byproducts of faith, but it's never actually just knowing God and being satisfied in him. The truth of the Bible teaches us that when we meet God, he brings a new sense in our heart that we are fully and completely satisfied in him. We've seen a holy God, and we've experienced his love, and now we just come and we say, God, I'm completely satisfied in you. You are what I desire. I don't need any of the gifts. God brings that new sense to our heart. Now, it's entirely possible this morning that as I say that, that God can bring a satisfaction in our hearts that some of you know what I'm saying. You agree. You're nodding your heads. Some of you believe what I'm saying is true, And for some of you watching online, right, you're like, okay, yeah, I know what you're saying, Jeff. I believe it's true, but here's the third thing. You have never actually experienced it. You you know it. You believe what I'm telling is true, but you've never actually experienced the satisfaction of God in your life. I don't know if any of you have uh, traveled to a climate that's warm and I, because of my travels, I've been in you know, situations where, where I've met people, this is my point, where I've met people that have only ever been in a warm climate all of their life. Never, you know, never been to Canada, never seen snow. And inevitably, you talk about the weather in those kind of situations. And inevitably, the conversation goes something like this. The person says, oh, I'd love to come to Canada first week in February and see snow. And then I say, no, you don't. Right? And they're like, oh, no, I want to come. And they've got this picture, you know, like the snow is gently falling, and we're just out frolicking in the snow all day long. And I'm like, no, you don't want to come to Canada first week in February. Right? The days are really short. The, they're bitter cold, and we're just all like hibernating like bears in our homes. You don't want to come. And then they nod and say, oh, yeah, but I still want to come. Right? They just, and here's what you know. They, they know what I'm saying. I can show them on a you know, on some sort of diagram that the days are short. I can show them the temperature, that it's like minus something, that it's cold, but they've never experienced it. They've never experienced it. And so they have the knowledge, they have the belief, but they don't have the experience. It works the same way, the other way. And I was thinking about this for me. Some of you have been to Nevada. You know, and if you've ever been to Nevada, I think this is the same in Arizona, you know, you go to those places and then someone says, oh, was it hot? And then you say this, Oh, no, but it's a dry heat. Ever heard that? 
You know, now, I've never been to Nevada. So when I say, oh, how was the weather? You say, oh, it was hot, but it was a dry heat. You know what I do? I just nod and smile. I'm like, oh, yes, the dry heat. Now, I know what a dry heat is. I know that there's less humidity in the air. And I've never been to Nevada, but when you tell me there's a dry heat in Nevada, I believe you that it's a dry heat in Nevada. But I've never experienced it. So if you tell me that, I just like nod and smile. If you see me at the door afterwards, you say, oh, dry heat in Nevada. I'm just going, oh, yes, of course, the dry heat. Right? I have no idea what we're talking about. But I'm just nodding and agreeing. I could probably do a wonderful lesson on the dry heat, but I've never once experienced it. I was with someone last week, and they were talking about weather out west in Calgary, I think it was. And he said, oh, it's a dry cold. And I was like, oh, yes, the dry cold. And I have no idea what that means, right? I've never experienced it. There we come here. Here's what David's saying. I will be fully satisfied with God. You're, you're better than a meal. You're better than anything. Do you know that moment? Do you know that moment where the light has gone on, where you've just enjoyed God and felt his satisfaction, where it's been a reality for you, where you just say, oh God, you are better than life. Let me say this. If you don't know that moment, if you've never had that experience, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. What what he says is when we meet God, he changes our hearts so that we have this new sense of who he is. And you might say to me today, well, tell me what that's like. Tell me what it's like. I can no more tell you what that's like than I can tell you what a dry heat or a dry cold is like. But if you've never experienced that, if you've never experienced that, this morning would you say, but I want to. This morning would you say in your heart, God, I'm going to seek after you. I'm going to run after you. I'm going to thirst after you, God. I'm going to come to Christ. I want to follow you. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to pursue Jesus, and I want to know that satisfaction. Maybe you've spent your time focused on the gifts. The gifts don't bring satisfaction. The giver brings satisfaction, and oh, wouldn't you run to Christ this morning? For some of you, you know what I'm talking about. For many of you, you know this moment. You know the moment where you have felt just this overarching satisfaction in God and who he is. For some of you, it was this morning. You spent time in the word this morning and prayed and journaled, and you were like, God, thank you that you fed me this morning. For others of you, you've got a time this week where you felt the closeness of God, where he was just so near and so, so close. For others of you, you might say, you know, it's been a while. It's been a while, but I know it. I know that emotion. I know it. And my prayer this morning is even as we see it in David so fully that you would say, I desire it, I want it, I thirst after it, I know what it is, and I want to go back and find more of it. That we wouldn't seek God to get his benefits, we wouldn't obey God to get his gifts, we would just say, God, I just seek after you to know you, I just obey you because I want to know the beauty of your name and the beauty of who you are. So that's my prayer. And this is what David's doing. See, he's thirsting for God. So he's remembering, he's meditating, he's going back, he's desiring and he's delighting in God. And my prayer this morning is what God would be working in our hearts and in our church is exactly the same desire. So let me give just a couple of applications, as I did last week, for all of us, series applications on how we can live this out. I tried to choose some different ones. If you're in cruise control in your spiritual life, these are designed to sort of jar us out of that into something new. You'll see them on the side screens. First, I'm asking that you would read a book. If you're saying, yeah, how do I seek God more? How do I thirst after him? How do I pursue him more? Then I am recommending this book, The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. It's 30 years old. It stood the test of time. And let me tell you, this book will not beat you up. 
It will not beat you up. It's about grace. It's about grace. And you will feel encouraged and go deeper into the grace of God and out of the grace then he will lead you into seeking God. So if you, don't, if you want to learn more about what I'm talking about, how to apply it, you can read the book over the next year. Some of you maybe haven't read a Christian book all year. Would you read this book? Read it slowly. Uh, ingest it. Let it sink into your hearts. They're for sale at the welcome desk today. We've got a bunch of copies out there this week. Second request, would you memorize Psalm 63? First eight verses. Thank you for those of you that did this this morning. We will do exactly the same thing next week. Stand at the beginning of the message and say it together. And even next week, if you can just get verse one done, just do verse one. Come ready, all of us, to say verse one really loud together. Then my third application point is, would you join me and fast on Wednesday, September 1st? Not eat food. We do this every first Wednesday as a church. It's just a good discipline for us as a church. Once a month to say, we're not going to eat food and we're just going to seek after God. That's a good discipline. But some of you maybe have never fasted before. And I know here, I want to give a lot of grace. Some of you are in health situations, work situations, where you just can't fast. But here's my request. Don't try to find a way to work your way out of the fasting. Try to find a way to work your way into it. Just try to find some way to work your way in. But this Wednesday, would you fast one meal? Fast your lunch at work and read the Bible or go for a prayer walk. Fast one dinner and, just, and we, you'll see some verses on the back of this prayer explanation on your chairs that explains the whole day. If you fasted one meal, would you fast two? If you fasted a day, would you fast two? My request last week, and again I'll make it this week, would you fast more this week than you ever have before? Why? Just to know God and his beauty and his greatness. And then we have a fourth way today. We have a fourth way, and that's our communion time together. And here's what's great about communion, is that Christ is present when we take these elements in a special way. Christ is more present in these moments. He designs this so we will come near to him and experience his greatness, his love, and the satisfaction in him. You know, even as we eat the little elements in a moment, those aren't going to fill you up. But the spiritual significance is, is that I've come and I've felt the presence of Christ and I'm leaving full spiritually in these next moments. So here's what we're going to do. They're the same verses that if you don't know what to pray over this week when you're fasting and praying, they're the verses on the back here. We're just going to take the first three. I'll introduce the verse and then I'm just going to give us 30 seconds just to pray and ponder them ourselves. They lead us in the same journey we've been on today. Then after the third verse, I'll move to the table and we will partake of the elements together. So here's our first verse. It just reminds us of the holiness of God. It's a picture of the throne room of God from Revelation 4. It reads, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As we play a music in the background, would you just take 30 seconds and just ponder the holiness of God in his throne room. Let's just have a moment of silence.
to our second verse. This is a verse you can be praying over when you're fasting as well. It just reminds us of our sinfulness. It's from Romans 3. Let me read it for you. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. Would you just in the next moments, just as we've pondered the holiness of God, would you just spend time confessing your sin, confessing your sin before the Lord? the verse that leads us into this communion time from Ephesians 2, and you'll see it on the screens. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Spend a moment and ponder God's rich mercy and the incredible grace that Christ gives us through the cross. up here to the communion table, uh, you can now, you have a little, uh, underneath your chairs, there should be a little cup like this. It's got a wafer on the top, and then underneath it's got some juice. And if you are a follower of Christ, if you know in your heart what I've talked about today, whether you're a member or not of Harbor, you can partake of these elements in a moment this table is important. You know, we come to communion and we look up to Christ and sense all that he's done in our lives, but we also look around. You know, you've got individual packets, but it's important to remember that this is, it comes from one body and one cup. It reminds us of the importance of our unity. It reminds us of the importance of our community together. It reminds us how we all need each other to experience the closeness of Christ. And so as you would ponder all that Christ has done for you, his broken body, his shed blood, would you just take now, take the cracker from the top and eat that, and then take the juice and drink that as we remember what Christ has done for us. As you continue, let me pray. Jesus, we marvel. We marvel. We worship you, God, for who you are. God, we come humbly before you as sinners. But, oh, God, we marvel in your great mercy, your exceeding grace. 
that though we were dead, you have made us alive in Christ. God, thanks for these moments where we can feed on your presence and experience you in our lives. And God, as we leave here, Lord, may we leave full of you. And oh God, I pray, Lord, as we would seek and thirst after you this week, may we find and discover more of you. Oh God, take us deeper this week as individuals and as a church in just knowing you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. What I want to do is we'll end our service today. We always end with four words. This reminds us of the mission we have. Uh, But before I say those words, let me just read these words of benediction from Ephesians 3. And it talks about this rich experience. Here's what Paul writes. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's my prayer for you. Harbor, we are sent.